Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the executive who wonders if we are living in a multipolar world and in my spare time, I wonder whether our future is truly Asian. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia. And today I have Parag Khanna, author of his new book, The Future is Asian. Welcome Parag and it's great to have you back here for the third time and you're finally launching your new book, which I'm anticipating for a while. Thank you so much, Mara. It's great to be back with you. And I hope that I now have the record for most appearances on your show. Well, probably not yet. Maybe you might have to write another three more books to get that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> and of course, your last time when we were here, you were talking about your last book, Connectography. And in between that, you have also written a pretty interesting book, which I thought was very timely, was Technocracy in America. So this time around, you have published The Future is Asian, Commerce, Conflict and Culture in the 21st Century. But before we get into the main subject of the day, I wanted to ask you, since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Well, indeed, it's been busy. Technocracy, certainly, you know, in terms of the timing, coming out right after Trump's inauguration, and that was, of course, by design, was really meant to shine a light and really hold up a mirror to Western political systems that are succumbing to populism, protectionism, isolationism, and so forth. But much more significantly, the purpose was to offer a better model. And what I did in that book is to look at the government design of Switzerland and Singapore and to combine them into a model that I call direct technocracy. And so the book was really explaining that. And that has taken up a lot of time because, of course, it's such a hot topic. And then, of course, I've been researching The Future is Asian, which is coming out you know, very soon. And you know, the research for that has been, as always, a very intensive effort involving a lot of travel, a lot of interviews, a lot of academic research and quantitative research. And I've been running my company, FutureMap, which is looking at using data scenario planning to evaluate some of the impact of Belt and Road, which is, of course, one of the key topics in the book as well. I just wanted to ask you this, since I've also read Technocracy in America, given that what we have seen in the last two years and recently the Congress have flipped to the Democratic Party, do you foresee that there is an opportunity still to reach that state that you wanted to get to, which is Technocracy in America, or is it going to be more polarization between the two parties? Yes, unfortunately, it's more of the latter. You know, there is some notion psychologically that many of us may have a sort of embedded bias in which we tend to identify progressive reform in government with the Democratic Party and therefore a shift such as what the U.S. has experienced just now, a slight shift in the Congress means that, you know, the system can be saved. But that's actually the very problem that I'm identifying, which is that we confuse and conflate parties in the system. The the fact is that in my model, and quite frankly, empirically as well, successful state does not depend on having a two-party duopoly, which is really so polarized and works across purposes. So we're going to see more polarization. If you were to make a list of even the items for a national agenda, like education, infrastructure, healthcare, and so forth, that all Americans can agree on, And then you were to ask yourself, honestly, what the timeline is for implementation of those objectives, if you were to have already started, it would be a very long road. And of course, we don't even have the consensus, nor the resources, nor the execution in place. So I don't see something such as the supposedly optimistic flip in the House of Representatives in the U.S. as actually being meaningful in the grand scheme of things. 
So today we're going to talk about the new book. And seriously, for Analyze Asia podcast, this is a fantastic title. The Future is Asian. Commerce, Conflict and Culture in the 21st Century is published by Simon Schuster. And you obviously have spent a lot of time writing this book. I wanted to start off with the conversation by just asking you, why is the future Asian? Well, actually, you know, I suppose I could have called the book The Present is Asian, but that might not have been as catchy. And of course, people refer to me as a futurist, so that would have been quite regressive, even you might say. But the present is Asian, of course, because demographically, we have uh, more than 50% of the world population located in Asia. And I should add, as an aside, of course, the geography of Asia is something that I explain you know, very much uh, up front. For many people, Asia is just East Asia. But of course, Asia is a geological and geographical expression. And it actually stretches all the way from the Gulf countries of Saudi Arabia and Yemen all the way to Japan, and north from Russia, south to Australia. So I'm talking about a very large geography, and China is very important to that geography, but it's not only about China. And indeed, China represents only 1.5 billion people out of the collective nearly 5 billion population of Asia. So there are more than 3 billion Asians who are not Chinese. And so this collective demographic weight is one factor. If you add up the economies of the Asian mega-region, you're already looking at the largest regional economic zone in the world, nearly 40% of global GDP. The largest armies, largest banks and financial institutions, and so on and so forth. By most measures, the world is already Asian. But what typically happens in these times of transition is that our mental models and the inertia that governs our thinking, the frameworks we use, lag quite a ways behind And that's, after all, why I write these books, is to catch our thinking up to our reality and to prognosticate and forecast into the future. So really, truly, by most every measure, the world is already Asian. It's simply going to become more and more Asian. Now, Asia is, of course, Asian, but one important facet of the book that I go through is going region by region in the world, such as Europe, America, South America, Africa the Arab world, and I show just how Asian these regions are becoming, how dependent on Asia they are, how dense their interactions with Asia are, how large the Asian diasporas are becoming, the impact in day-to-day life that Asian culture and other dimensions of connectivity are having with Asia on the most far-flung regions of the world, and also on the other core regions of power, such as the United States and, and Europe. So what are the main themes of your new book? Is it really more focused on trying to provide a roadmap to where Asia is developing and evolving towards and then how the rest of the world would interact with this greater Asia region that you talk about? Yes, indeed. You know, one of the most, I think, hopefully biggest contributions, which is, may appear to many people who are in their busy day-to-day lives in business, may seem incidental, but it's extremely significant as a historical chapter. What I did is to painstakingly reconstruct the history of the world from the year 3000 BC to the present from an Asian point of view. So rather than see the world through a Eurocentric lens, I reconstructed history from an Asia-centric lens. And I took great pains to not make it a China-centric lens, but I spent equal time on West Asia, Central and South Asia, and East Asia, sequentially, century by century, and tried to give a balanced account of world history. And what's remarkable there, and I think what's so important for all of us 
who work on a day-to-day level across the borders of Asia is to remind ourselves that, of course, this new Silk Road era that is such a central theme in the book is not new. It's the third you know, era of Silk Road historically. But the thing is that it's been 500 years since Asian states and Asian economies were more intensely connected to each other than to colonial powers. Because of colonialism in the Cold War, Asia has spent the past 500 years more divided from each other than united. And a big theme in the book is how it's already put itself back together again faster than anyone realizes, particularly in the last 25 years since the end of the Cold War. And that, I think that even though it's historical, it's, of course, a very brief summary of all of that history. But for a business person, for a statesman reading this, I imagine that they will take that as an enormous inspiration and realize that even as it seems so tentative and difficult to negotiate with one's neighbors who come from different cultures and and linguistic backgrounds, and they represent a certain amount of political and economic risk, it's been done before with great confidence and success. And so, you know, part of this book is really, of course, a businessman's guide, an industrial guide to understanding the different subregions of Asia, their enormous growth potential, and just how much each part of Asia actually does already depend on and benefit from the intensification of trade, investment, and cooperation across the vast Asian space. Let me zoom in to the very interesting point that you mentioned, that you started the history of Asia from the Asian perspective. I sometimes also think that I have this view of the world or the history of the world that's more from a Eurocentric or Western point of view. Can you give some examples of how does that differ from how the West have viewed Asia in the past century from the point of view, if you were to look at the history of Asia from an Asian perspective then? Oh, that's a great question, Bernard. And, you know, it goes to the heart of some of the most standard and pervasive frameworks that we use to understand the world today when we analyze things from a Eurocentric point of view. One is, of course, the role of sovereignty. Because sovereignty has been so contested for centuries between European powers, we assume that that is sort of foundational perspective that the rest of the world takes as well. But the truth is that for most of the world, sovereignty is a very new concept. It really only began in 1945 with decolonization and the sort of withdrawal of European powers. Asian powers are much more civilizational states with boundaries between them. Now, of course, given sovereignty and given that sort of imposition, if you will, that now does, of course, politically structure Asian relations, there is a notion that that is the dominant framework. But I cite many examples of how, in a way, because Asians have that confident civilizational path, they can do a lot to transcend those boundaries. And, you know, Belt and Road is one example of it for sure. Another is the belief that, you know, sort of religion is always something that countries fight over. And that's, again, a very Eurocentric point of view. But in Asian history, of course, religion has often been a bond, whether it is sort of philosophical traditions like Confucianism or then Buddhism, and even the role of Islam across the region. Religion is not nearly as divisive internationally So one of the things that I point out is that because European cultures are so similar, there has always been a fear that one could dominate the others, whether it's Napoleonic France or Nazi Germany. Europeans can actually convince themselves that they could dominate, integrate, subsume their neighbors and make them obey them. But in Asia, no one has any misperception that that could ever happen. The cultures of Southeast Asia, of India, of China, of Japan, of Korea, of the Turkic cultures of Central Asia, 
are so incredibly distinct and so geographically vast and detached from each other. I think it's very important to point out the geographic difference. Asia is vast, whereas Europe is claustrophobic. You know, we should not have any concern today that any one civilization could actually geopolitically dominate the others, especially given each of their respective size. So really the mentality, the frameworks that represent the fundamental Asian worldview are really quite different. And those perspectives have never been vocally articulated and sort of put together in one place. And also, of course, we measure whether or not regions are integrating these days based on a Eurocentric point of view. Do they have a common currency? Is there a supranational European Union or parliament or commission? With Asia, we're never going to have those things. But that doesn't mean that we should create false metrics around what constitutes constructive integration of Asia, because by most useful metrics, that integration is occurring very, very well. And one of the critical ones is, of course, the fact that Asians trade more with each other than with any other part of the world. So, for example, when it comes to China, China's largest trading partner is not America. China's largest trading partner is not Germany. China's largest trading partner is its Asian neighbors as a regional whole. And China's second largest trading partner is the European Union. America is China's third largest trading partner. Now, just imagine how much differently this trade war would be playing out if the people in the Trump administration really understood properly the relationship between national markets, regional integration, investment flows, and so forth before launching this trade war. If they understood that China can do a great deal to substitute America through its two more significant regional trading partners. So it's extremely important that we appreciate the data as it is, the historical linkages between countries, because that can actually shape some very, very significant contemporary challenges and decisions. When I look back at the history of Asia in the probably 15th to 16th century before the European colonization and then to the point after World War II where most of the Asian countries have gone independent and then there is the rise of the Asian economies and then subsequently there is the rise of Japan, Korea and now China and of course there is also the evolution of technology and innovation within the region. If I'm from a century in the future from now, where do you see the real tipping point in the recent years that propelled Asia towards asserting its own independence then? Well, Asian countries, of course, achieved independence at different times over the course of the 20th century through, through decolonization and, of course, the subsequent wars, such as the Vietnam War. So we've had different scales, time horizons, and the pace of modernization. But I do think it's very useful to think of Asian growth not in terms of competitive blocks, but rather in terms of these mutually reinforcing waves. And that's why I do begin that part of the story with the Japanese wave and Japan's spectacular growth in the 1950s and 60s and how its industrialization model inspired the tiger economies in the following couple of decades, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, of course, and Hong Kong, and how those countries became the leading investors in the Chinese economic miracle. And they, they really helped China become what it is today. And now the next wave is driven not only by the reforms and the inward investment of countries like India, but the fact that, again, Japan, China, South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore are, them, are collectively the largest investors in South and Southeast Asia. And South and Southeast Asia represent two and a half billion people, younger demographics than China, a GDP of $6 trillion, and very fast growth rates. 
So again, it's not about competing blocks. It's about reinforcing waves in cycles that last a couple of decades. And Japan has not disappeared from the scene. China is slowing down, but it's still the world's largest economy and so forth. So all of these positive waves, in a way, are still flowing at the same time. And again, that's not the way that typically we see economists talking about Asia, because those in the field of macroeconomics tend to define the unit of analysis as a competitive nation block, rather than looking at the important and again the multiplicative effect, the additive effect of regionalization. That's a very interesting perspective. It's not so much about competition, but more collaboration and achieving a win-win type of culture within the Asia context. I want to ask you this question: From your perspective, does the Belt and Road Initiative from China signify another shift in where Asia evolves in the next few decades, or is it going to be also part of just China exerting its influence across the region? Then. Absolutely, it's a great question. But let me go back to answer it again to exactly 27 years to the collapse of the Soviet Union, because what we today call Belt and Road has antecedents going back to that period of time. As you know, I have been traveling in the Central Asian republics for more than 20 years, and for a long time been very familiar with Chinese infrastructure-based activity, its pipeline development, institutions such as the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And of course, even prior to that, the energy supercycle that really linked the West Asian countries of the Persian Gulf region, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Kuwait, and so forth, to the fast-growing East Asian economies. So, to me, the story of the Asianization of Asia—and again, that phrase, as cumbersome as it is—the Asianization of Asia is a very, very operative process and dynamic that I explore in the book. It largely does go back to this last three decades. But the energy supercycle linking West and East Asia, the trade liberalization incrementally, bilaterally within Northeast Asia, between Southeast Asia and China, and across the Asian region, culminating in the regional comprehensive economic partnership that should go into effect next year, and also Belt and Road. These are again mutually reinforcing processes that have a history. They weren't born out of thin air. And so, Belt and Road is most certainly an accelerant to dynamics that have been underway for three decades, and I personally believe it's a very positive one. And this is most certainly the most counterintuitive and provocative claim in the book, which is that Belt and Road will not ultimately it will not result in Chinese hegemony over Asia simply because China is building and financing these infrastructures. Rather, it will do the exact opposite. It will accelerate the multipolarity of Asia. Which is really Asia's natural state of affairs. Again, going back to the point about these distinct and confident and detached civilizations, with very little history of one being able to dominate the others for very long. And because what actually happens with a process like Belt and Road, as with all previous periods of empires investing in their colonies and their periphery, is that they actually wind up instilling in these territories the confidence and the strength and the tools. To resist colonialism or neo-colonialism, and so you can already see, of course, with the backlash that China is facing, or with the cancellation of projects in Myanmar or Malaysia, the renegotiation of debt in Myanmar, the hesitancy that some countries have to take on excessive Chinese debt, like Pakistan. You can already see that countries want to ensure that they take the benefits of engagement with China. 
such as the financing and the development of infrastructure, but they limit Chinese dominance over their economies. And again, it's quite visible across the region. Now, if this were a neo-colonial world, if Belt and Road were simply the British East India Company 2.0, then you would not have colonies or small, weak countries able to so confidently renegotiate their debts with China. But this is a new world, right? This is a world of sovereignty, right? Going back to the previous discussion. And so countries will use that sovereignty shrewdly to limit Chinese dominance. They will have investment screening. They will declare strategic assets and utilities off limits or out of bounds to foreign investors and so forth. And many of these laws are designed to prevent Chinese dominance over their economies. So we do live in a different world, one in which Chinese investment actually helps neglected economies achieve investment grade, attract foreign investment, diversify their economies, modernize their infrastructure, create jobs, and grow so that in a very short amount of time, they can actually diminish and dilute China's dominance. So while we are very optimistic about the future of Asia, what are the bottlenecks or challenges that may pop up to disrupt that potential growth then? There's always risks. You know, we should not forget that Asia is actually kind of the world's largest arms bazaar, right? We have weapons proliferation in West Asia and the Gulf countries. We have the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. We have tensions between India and China that flared up last year. We have the lingering historical disputes between China and Japan, South China Sea, and so forth. So there's ample conflicts to say nothing of North Korea, the number of nuclear weapons states. There are plenty of hair-trigger kinds of risks, but what we've seen in the past 25 years is that Asian countries have been quite good at managing those tensions and separating geoeconomics and geopolitics. And I think most Asian countries show a positive tendency towards that pragmatism continuing. I certainly see, you know, there are risks. So in that territorial domain, that's one category of risk. Another is the social risk, of course, because we have social and environmental, I should say, because Asian populations are very much concentrated in coastal megacity areas. But we live in a time of uh, rising sea levels, of environmental stress and degradation, and we could have very significant climatic events that are going to put a major dent on you know, economic growth and stress uh, public policy and fiscal policy. So I view that as a risk. We do have social risks, ethnic tensions within countries, high inequality, and so forth. But, you know, there's a final section of the book is a long and empirical treatment, almost country by country, of the ways in which Asian countries are managing to balance democratic forces, the forces of liberalism and demand for responsiveness among publics with what I'm calling technocracy. And of course, this is adapted from the previous book in which Countries and governments are expected to have a long-term vision, a consistent mandate, increases in public spending for infrastructure, pro-poor social policies, and a lot of continuity in long-term when it comes to state building. So that also is a significant uh, theme addressed in the book. And so I think, you know, thus far, for all the major challenges that uh, Asian countries have, and I like to say that, for example, in China, Every problem that China has is the largest problem in human history, and yet we see extraordinary efforts and commitment being made to address those. 
I think what is also interesting is some of the things that are happening now. I just want to get a sense of your thoughts. Like, for example, the US-China escalating trade tensions. I think it's not really a trade war yet. They're currently diffused for another 90 days. Where do you think that this US-China relationship would impact the rest of Asia in that future? Well, I think we can actually be fairly confident in the outcome because what we see is an acceleration of the substitution of the United States in terms of the goods and services that it sells to China in favor of further intra-Asian liberalization and integration. So the U.S. not joining TPP, the U.S. trade war or you know, attempt to add a trade war against China simply accelerates China's integration with the rest of the region. That's why we've seen very recently South Korea and Japan and China getting together to further open Northeast Asian trade. And again, these three countries already trade more than $4 trillion a year through intermediate supply chains and finished goods. So you have an intensification of uh, intra-Asian trade. And I use this you know, in many cases when we look at sector by sector today and how the trade war is playing out. You know, if we look at semiconductors, electronics components, so many areas where when there was less political risk in U.S.-China trade, Chinese firms signed up to long-term contracts with American suppliers. But now that there are export controls being imposed, and in some cases justified, in other cases arbitrary, Chinese companies in their next procurement cycles are, of course, going to favor more reliable suppliers that are very competitive. Japanese components, Korean as well, Taiwanese. And of course, China has much more intense relations and much more leverage over those countries than it has over the United States. So I think that for the U.S. and for corporate America, the pain from this trade war is, has only just begun to be felt. Just imagine what will happen when 10 or 15 Chinese airlines in their next cycle of procuring and ordering aircraft instead of going 50% Boeing, 50% Airbus, decide to give Airbus 70% of the contracts. And that's just one sector, again, and one product, so to speak. So I think, you know, this is not going to play out well for the United States because, again, they have not appreciated the extent to which Asia has already achieved or is in the process of achieving an ever more robust self-sufficiency through its internal trade dynamics. I enjoyed the chapter on Asianomics that described the third Asia growth wave. One of the things that you commented in that part of the book is that it starts from China, where many watchers of this country either predict that the country is on the brink of collapse or it will eventually devour the rest of the world. I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on a pan-Asia point of view. How will be the other different parts of Asia, such as India, Southeast Asia, growing? And how will be advanced economies of Asia, such as Japan, Korea, and Singapore, how would they adjust themselves towards this growth wave with this new Asia landscape then? Right. It's a great question. You know, this is the area of the research in the book that was most exciting to me because it really brings us up to the minute in understanding the diverse economic models in Asia. We obviously have very diverse political economies across Japan and Korea on the one hand, China and then more open political economies in India and Southeast Asia. And we see, again, enormous complementarities between them in terms of where they are in their economic modernization cycle. So again, China, because it's so large, really occupies very diverse rungs of the global value chain simultaneously. 
Japan, of course, is a very mature economy that's opening itself up in the sense of looking at opportunities to invest in and almost drive these future growth waves as an important export destination for its uh, high-end goods. And that's why we see the sort of expanded reach of corporate Japan through Abenomics, and they're building stronger ties with India and Southeast Asia. So as I explained in this sort of multi-wave kind of approach to analyzing Asian economics, it's the mature economies that are really inspiring the developing economies and helping them to leapfrog. And leapfrogging, as you recall, is a term that I use quite a bit in this book, but I don't just use it in the conventional and narrow understandings. I explain it in terms of healthcare, artificial intelligence, even public policy models around delivery of public services. There's so many ways in which this leapfrogging is underway as the cost of technology comes down and as the sharing and learning accelerates uh, across Asia. So I am very, very optimistic about that process that's going on. You know, we have India already growing faster than China, Southeast Asia integrating, and the ASEAN GDP is larger than the Indian GDP. ASEAN is receiving more foreign investment than China is. And this is something that predates the trade war, but will accelerate in the wake of the trade war. So the combination of, you know, urbanization, digitization, integration, all of these things bode very well to not only give a new lease on life to the high-tech society, such as Japan and Korea, as they further integrate with the younger society, but also to accelerate the growth of those younger developing societies. So that's something that I explore at great length. And it really is the feature of the Asian region that actually has me the most optimistic. I think this phenomenon of having local champions in the technology startup world in the past few years, for example, Grab DD, that can stand up against Uber, and also the reality of US tech companies facing Chinese tech giants, for example, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, is actually also changing the way how the Asian business ecosystem works. This is just a sort of question that I want to ask you. Do you foresee that eventually Asia will assert its own independence in terms of technology and innovation, or is just going to be basically coming out just from China and the US? And probably if there is a third power that arises, may probably be from India then. It's a great question. And I think that you know too many people are extrapolating only from the present into the future when it comes to this issue. We have a lot of people talking about a bipolar US-China arms race. I think that's thoroughly incorrect because the law of accelerated technology diffusion is a force more powerful than any one superpower, any one economy at this point in time. So whether the technology is robotics or artificial intelligence, we're seeing the toolkit transplanted very quickly around the region and around the world. So the gap, in other words, between the countries that are inventing, such as the United States, China, and Japan, and those countries that are innovating, which is to say deploying those technologies, is shrinking very, very rapidly. And also, given the very different political economies, you can well imagine that with SoftBank and Google's investment in Indian AI companies, you will see a proliferation of low-cost AI-as-a-service models that, of course, are going to offer very useful, beneficial machine learning and other services to high-growth companies and aspiring governments all around the region, but without the risks of data privacy associated with working with Chinese firms. Now, of course, 
Chinese firms have moved ahead in these markets and been such crucial sponsors and technology providers in Southeast Asia and elsewhere, given their early first mover advantage. But as you well know, the funding pool, the liquidity available to companies today is on a scale never before seen. So one no longer necessarily needs either American or Chinese money or American or Chinese technology moving forward. So the notion that there is going to be some total dominance by one or the other, when in fact you will have a very multipolar, heterogeneous landscape and a very competitive one that is, of course, very beneficial for the marketplace, I think that is far more likely how this is going to play out. I totally agree with you on the multipolar world. I think that anyone thinks of bipolar dominance probably would look back to the Cold War between the Soviet Union or now today Russia and the United States. And it also starts to shift and make changes. I want to ask you this. What would be your advice today for the Asians in America and the Americans in Asia for the next few decades, given this growth in Asia that's ongoing now? Oh, it's a great question. As you know, one of the sections of the book, I talk about the shift from Asian Americans, which is really someone like me and millions of people like me who were born in Asia and whose families migrated to the West and grew up being called Asian Americans, but now have moved back to Asia or many Americans and Westerners who are moving to Asia for the first time, who I now call American Asians. And that term, of course, doesn't exist. I've just coined it in this book in order to capture this phenomenon of the millions of expatriates from the West who are deciding that Asia is going to be their home permanently or indefinitely. And that really is remarkable. So the desire that Westerners now have not to come to Asia to be aloof expats, but to, in many ways, go native and to understand the societies and to learn Mandarin or other languages to raise their families here, to work for local or regional companies, uh, whatever the case may be, that is on a scale that we have not seen ever before. And I think that really is a sign of the times. And you know, going back to your very first question, how do we know the future is Asian? We can actually see it simply by looking at the number of people from the West who are moving to Asia, and of course, voluntarily, because they see that that is in fact the case. <laughs> I just thought I should have a tongue-in-cheek question. What about the Asians who are living in Asia like myself? What would be your advice? Oh, well, you're clearly living and thriving at the right period of time. <laughs> well, Para, many thanks for sharing your insights. And I think that the book is going to be out in the 5th of February. And I'm looking forward to actually reading the physical copy of that. So in closing, I would like to ask you two questions. The first one is, can you recommend a book, podcast, or anything else that had impact to your work and personal life recently? Well, one of the best books that I've read in the last six months is called The World in a Grain. And this is a book about the entire history of the role of sand in building our modern civilization. And it is one of the most elegant, eloquent, best-written, well-researched books at the intersection of natural resources and commodities as well as economics and geopolitics that I've ever read. And using the vehicle of the humble grain of sand, which of course is made of silica, actually the most abundant element in the Earth's crust, he explains how nothing that we take for granted today in modern life, from glass and steel buildings to, of course, microchips and processors would be possible without sand. 
And the book, that's just the tip of the iceberg, really. It is such a stunning and almost you know, majestic study. Everything that could possibly be said about sand and every conceivable aspect of life that depends on it is covered in this book. And it's just a fantastic read. So I highly recommend it to everyone. So how did my audience find you then? To find me, simply need to go to paragkhanna.com, P-A-R-A-G-K-H-A-N-N-A. I'm on Facebook under facebook.com slash Dr. Parag Khanna. And of course, on Twitter as well, at Parag Khanna, and uh, all other social media as well. And you can definitely Google me at Bernard Leong or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and now on Spotify. You can also tweet to me your feedback and of course, give us a five-star rating on iTunes and that will help us in discovery and a star on Pocket Cast or Overcast. And most importantly, if there is any guest that you want to know, please tweet to me or just send me an email. Once again, Parag, many thanks for coming on the show and I wish you all the best success for this latest book of yours. Thank you so much, Bernard. Really great to speak with you as always.